Well, all year we're focusing on chapter by chapter and verse by verse on the gospel according to John in a series we're calling Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And if you missed any of the uh, sermons so far, you can always go back and watch or listen online if you'd like. Uh, but this morning we're starting John chapter 4. And starting last week, we uh, started working through a longer section of John's gospel that focuses on conversations that individual people have with Jesus. And I asked you last week, like, can you imagine if you had one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus, face-to-face, -face, what that conversation would be like? Well, John, one of the closest friends and followers of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus, actually records some conversations just like that. And they're fascinating. Uh, we said last week that, that these conversations show the humility of Jesus, that he would be willing to spend one-on-one -on -one time with individual people and not just you know, bask in the glory of fame and the crowds and so forth. But, but it, this, these conversations also reveal not just his humility, but his heart for people. Jesus loves people. And no two conversations as a result are alike. Because Jesus meets everyone where they are at. He doesn't expect them to hurry up and approach him with all the right questions or all the right answers. He meets them where they're at and he helps them move forward in the truth and in healing and redemption and in whatever else they need most. But also, each conversation gives us a little new insight into the person and work of Jesus. Now, last week, we started this kind of little series of conversations between Jesus and a powerful religious leader named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, we said, would have been widely seen as one of the good people of his time and place. He, he may be one of the best people in their society. Like, if you could think, if you lived during that time, if you could think, like, who would be considered a good person, a, a faithful person, a religious person, probably someone like Nicodemus would come to mind. But Jesus was clear. Even a man like Nicodemus needed to be born again in order to see or to enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, the way of salvation is a gift of God's grace and a work of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that anyone, including Nicodemus, can earn by being a good person. Now, for Nicodemus, it was, I think, a challenging conversation. He wound up confused, maybe had a sense of being rebuked in some ways. Well, would that be how Jesus would treat his next conversation? Well, today we have another conversation, but with someone who could in so many ways be seen as the polar opposite of Nicodemus. That is the woman at the well. Now, this conversation in John chapter 4 is one of the best examples, I think, of John's statement in the prologue at the beginning, which was that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So the way that he deals with this woman who seems, as we'll see, to have something of a, of a sketchy past is really incredible. And, and I just have to think about us today. What about you? Is there anyone here who really could use some grace? Is there anyone here who struggles to keep their life perfectly well-ordered? This is rhetorical. You don't have to out yourself here, okay? Me, right? My life is a mess. Is, is there, I know, okay, I know most of you. I know someone here 
has got some junk in their past that seems to just follow you around and just whispers little guilty and shameful and regretful things into your heart. For all today who need some grace, this message is for you. There is one who offers unconditional acceptance, but also hope for life change. There is one who offers living waters welling up to eternal life, regardless of who you are or what you have done. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter four, starting with verse one. We are gonna cover a lot of Bible today because this is all one story and you need the whole story in order to understand what's happening. But I, I will try to unpack this as we go. So let's jump right in with John chapter four, starting with verse one. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, let's pause here for now. So because Jesus' ministry is doing what John the Baptist hoped would happen, which is that Jesus would become greater even as John's ministry became less, uh, there was increased attention from the religious leaders of the Pharisees, and so Jesus decides to travel north. So let's look at a map here uh, together. And so we're starting down in the southern area of the region of Judea, which is where the city of Jerusalem is down in the south. Jesus had been doing some ministry there. And so then he travels north up into the region of Nazareth where he grew up and Capernaum where he did a bunch of ministry up in the northern region of Galilee. But they had to travel through this middle part uh, which is where on the map it says Shechem. And that part, that region was known as Samaria in their time. Now, uh, to get to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria or you had to take a really long way around. But, so... Presumably, it has been a long day already. Hot, difficult. Uh, so they decide to stop in Samaria at this place, which was known as Jacob's Well. The disciples leave Jesus by the well to go into town and buy some food. So Jesus is there by himself when this Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And Jesus starts this conversation with her simply by asking her for a drink. Now notice the difference between his approach to conversation with Nicodemus and his approach with the woman at the well. With, with Nicodemus, what was the first thing that Jesus said to him? Do you remember? 
<laughs> no one can see the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. What? Okay, he starts off a little strong, a little bold, Jesus, okay? With the woman at the well, he starts out with this way. Hey, could I have a drink? Much gentler, much softer approach. Now, she's clearly surprised by this question because of their different ethnic backgrounds. She mentions that. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. And as John gives us a little insight here, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, what's up with that? They're next door neighbors, right? Well, Jesus was raised in a Jewish culture that was very anti-Samaritan. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees called Jesus a Samaritan as an insult. Are you not a Samaritan? And everyone went, oh! It's not quite the same culture today, right? Okay, thank you. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and there had been about, at this point, about 700 years of violent history leading up to this point in time. It wasn't just that they were annoyed with each other, they had literally fought each other. There were ethnic differences between Jews and Samaritans, and that has a whole story. There were cultural differences and religious differences and political differences. Plus, they lived right next to each other, and so all their differences were constantly bumping up against each other. And so, despite all this, Jesus initiates a conversation. He gently starts this conversation with her, saying to this Samaritan woman, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. Now, what an intriguing thing to say. What, is, what does he mean by this? She's probably thinking... Who is this? And what, is he, what exactly is he offering here? Let's see in verse 11. Sir, the woman said, very respectful, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the, this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, uh, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. 
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Okay, let's pause here. Whoa, so the woman is intrigued by Jesus' offer of living water, right? How can I get this? But initially, like Nicodemus, she takes Jesus literally. How can you give me living water? You have nothing to draw water from the well. Like, where are you going to get this water? But, but she's intrigued, and she doesn't, it seems that she doesn't want to keep coming to, back to this well. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Well, why not? Drawing water from a well would be a normal daily occurrence for everybody back then. To, to give water to your animals, to use in cooking, to use around the house. Literally everyone had to draw water. So why should it be something that she would want to avoid? Well, I believe there's a clue in the text that this conversation, this is a little detail, that this conversation took place around noon. Now, noon was not the normal time in the day to draw water. Now, typically, people would have drawn water early in the morning to use throughout the day and in order to avoid hauling water, which is heavy, during the hottest part of the day, noon. So the fact that she was there at noon suggests that she's trying to avoid meetings and perhaps even conversations like the one that she's in now. So Jesus seems to understand exactly what's happening because the next thing he says to her is he says, go and, and call your husband and come back. But she says, I don't have a husband. Now, this isn't a problem. It's not a problem not to be married. Jesus wasn't married. So being single isn't the issue. There's something else going on. And Jesus knows about it because he says, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. So how could Jesus have possibly known this? How could he have just guessed that she had not just a string of failed marriages, but, but specifically five? Now, the only explanation is that Jesus had to have supernatural knowledge of her life. He truly knew her. Now, I don't believe that Jesus brings this up to make her feel guilty or feel bad about her life. In fact, it isn't even clear why these marriages have failed. Maybe they were her fault. You know, maybe she hadn't been faithful. Or maybe she had been abused and mistreated again and again in some way. Or, or maybe both. Or maybe something else. We, it's, we don't know from this, what we have here in this story. But Jesus brings up her past because, as we'll see throughout John's gospel, he always cuts to the heart of the matter. With Nicodemus, it was this well-known, influential religious leader's understanding of salvation and his need to be born again, despite his social status, despite his moral performance as a good person. With the woman at the well, it wasn't so much her understanding of salvation that needed to be dealt with, it was her past which included an embarrassingly long string of broken relationships. No wonder she was drawing water when it was unlikely that she would have to face anyone else. 
I think this speaks to the shame of what she felt around other people and their either outright or maybe assumed judgment of her life. She confirms this knowledge, this supernatural knowledge of Jesus, um, knowing her by observing, wow, you must be a prophet. How, how did you know that? Only, only with someone with God-given knowledge could know the, the story of my life. But then she, I, think, I think she quickly tries to change the subject. It seems like, oh, you're a prophet? Well, I have a theological question for you. Enough about my past. Let me ask you a question, uh, prophet. Uh, so I think this was an attempt to move Jesus away from talking about her past. Um, she probably would have wanted to talk about anything else at this point. But also, what the point that she brings up is it's really astute. She's a smart woman. She brings up one of the main points of disagreement between Jews and Samaritans. Wow, you must, have, you must be a prophet. God must have given you this divine information, this knowledge about my life and my past. Okay, I've always been meaning to ask someone with God-given knowledge about this point of disagreement between you Jews and us Samaritans. See, the Jews believed that they were to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, while Samaritans believed they were to worship God at Mount Gerizim near Shechem, near where they're having this conversation. And there were both religious and political implications or issues wrapped up in this disagreement of where the appropriate place is to worship God. Well, what would this Jewish prophet have to say about it? Maybe she's looking for how, how credible is this person? Do I really need to listen to what they have to say? Well, Jesus says something that I don't think she expected at all. Jesus said, really, it doesn't matter where you worship God. It's about how you worship God. And true worshipers will worship God in the spirit and in truth. And God is seeking people who will worship him like that, wherever they are in the world at any time. Now, the woman seems to believe Jesus, but it can't completely understand how this could be. Uh, but how could she before the cross, before the empty tomb, before the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? She, like the other disciples, like Nicodemus, couldn't possibly see the whole picture yet. So she says, okay, you make some valid points, but I know when the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one that God will send, when he comes, he'll explain all this to us. And this is one of the things that the Jews and the Samaritans had in common. They both believed that God would send the Messiah, which is, in the Hebrew means chosen one. Christ is the Greek version of the same word. Then Jesus declares, it's me. I am the Messiah. The one you're talking to, I am he. And this is just a bombshell. Because if you've been with us since the beginning of John's gospel, there have been other people that suspected it. There have been other people who even guessed that Jesus was the Messiah. But so far in John's gospel, he, Jesus has not directly confirmed this part of his identity to anybody. Now, it would have made sense to me, thinking about this, that Jesus would have revealed the fact that he was the Messiah sent by God to Nicodemus, this powerful religious leader. And it probably would have been a good political move on Jesus' part, right? Start building an alliance of the rich and powerful people like, like Nicodemus, the elites in Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't do that. It wasn't until he meets this 
most unlikely woman, this Samaritan woman with this sketchy past, that he says the truth about his identity. Now, why would he do this? What benefit could Jesus have possibly received from this woman? What did he have to gain from her? Or could it be that he just wanted her to know who he was just as he knew who she was? But how unusual of a situation this was is only highlighted by the disciples when they returned from town. Okay, let's continue with verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Uh, but no one asked, like, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, again, everybody takes everything so literally, could someone have brought him food? Did we lose our job? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor." So just briefly, the disciples return and they're surprised at what they find. They're like, uh-oh, here's Jesus and he's talking to a woman by himself. Okay, that starts off at least the yellow flag and she's a Samaritan woman and what is she doing at the well at this time? Okay, was this inappropriate? What's happening? But nobody, I think, had the guts to question him about it. So anyways, the disciples had brought back food and... They, uh, but Jesus wasn't hungry, so they're confused about all of this. But Jesus says I, he was fully satisfied from doing the work of his father. He's like, I don't need to eat anymore. I'm good. Oh, man. Well, this conversation filled me up. He was filled with joy. He was filled with gratitude that he had found the harvest fields ripe for the harvest. Even in the unlikely place of Samaria. Now, of course, the disciples didn't understand what in the world was happening at this time, but later they were sent out into the same harvest field. Later, the teaching of Jesus here would make sense, and they found after the death of Jesus and his resurrection and what we call the Great Commission, when he sent them out to make disciples of all nations, they found that there were, in fact, people like the Samaritan woman who were open and willing and seeking the truth and wanted to know about the person of Jesus. There were people like this woman, people with a past who needed both grace and truth. Men and women who needed unconditional acceptance, but also needed the hope for real life change, real spiritual growth, real freedom from bondage, true and lasting life. People who needed living water. And so, years before what we know now is the Great Commission, this woman 
this dear sister of ours in Christ left her water jar behind her just as the disciples left the nets to go and tell her story with everyone in her town. Everyone that she probably had tried up until that morning to avoid. Tell them about a new man that she had met. And this is different, not a man that she would marry, not a man that she would live with, but a man who truly knew her and truly loved her. Could he be the Messiah? Now their response to her testimony about Jesus is even more surprising than the fact of the conversation as well. Look at, look at verse 39, we'll finish this passage. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, remember what he said? We know that you're a teacher sent by God. And Jesus said, you know, we know. We know. We understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And here, the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time know too that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And this is an absolutely amazing story. Uh, this like spiritual revival breaks out where again? In Samaria. But that's the wrong place. Those aren't the good people. Those are the bad guys. Those are the people we insult, we use as insults. Well, what does this mean? How, how did God do this work of revival? What were the means of grace in that community? It was the testimony of a woman with a questionable sexual history. Now, certainly, she would not be the obvious choice for many. Last week, we saw that if Nicodemus needed to be born again, then there's hope for anyone. And this week, we see that it proved true with this sister in Christ. Now, isn't this an encouragement? <laughs> isn't this good news? Throughout the years of church history, this dear sister has been called Fotina. And I don't know if that's really her name, but it means one who has the light. Luminance. Wouldn't it be appropriate if she received a new name through this experience with Jesus? That Jesus would care for her and would know her and would speak with her and would honor her and would reveal what is true to this woman. So I ask you again, is there anybody here that needs grace? Is there anybody here that's has kind of a messed up life, who has been struggling with some things and is, is trying to deal with the junk in your past and it just follows you around day by day and whispers guilt and shame and regret into your heart. Well, maybe, maybe you too do things to avoid being known by others for this same reason. Maybe you too would go to the well at noon 
if you were in her shoes. But for all who need the grace of God today, this message is for you. There is one who offers unconditional acceptance regardless of who you are, but also hope for change. He doesn't leave you in the struggle and the mess. He gently, encouragingly, truthfully draws you forward. There is one who offers living waters welling up to eternal life regardless of who you are or what you have done. And his name is Jesus. And his job is to be the Messiah and to be indeed the Savior of the world. But if you believe that today, and if you believe that you are not only known intimately, better than anyone knows you, but you are also loved despite being known, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done, then let us follow the example of our sister, Fotina, the illuminated one, the one of the light, and let us follow her example in sharing our testimony with a world of darkness, a world that longs for life, a world that longs for the living water that well up to eternal life. And just watch what God might do even in the most unlikely place. Let's pray. Father, I am wrecked by your grace. I can't believe how you would treat these people, the people that I think the rest of society would just ignore or shun or uninvite or cancel. And yet, Lord Jesus, you are not only willing to offer your, your saving grace to them, but you actually want to be with them. You know them, and you love them, and you want them to know you too. Lord Jesus, I have come to know you, and you are good, and you are faithful and true. And so, Lord, would we have the power and the faith and the courage to share our stories too with a world that is lost without your savior, saving work? We love you, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Please stand. I was meditating on the 